happy belated new year one and all and welcome back to the Chawton House podcast. I'm Lizzie Frisby here to take you through the various events and the history of this great house based in the Hampshire village of Chawton. It was once owned by Edward Austin Knight, brother of the world famous writer Jane Austen. In this episode I am joined by the now previous owner of the estate, Richard Knight, who inherited it in 1987. We discuss the great responsibility that landed upon his shoulders and how he has seen the house restored to become open for the public to enjoy. I believe you are the 16th knight of Chawton. I can't tell you. I've I've not I've not stopped and counted. Fair enough. And yes, how are you this afternoon? Um, I I I live 80 or 90 miles from here, and I've had to just drive down here. Um, to meet you in the pouring rain, and I'm in a bad temper, and um, I've had a very tough time. Well, thank you so much for your time <laughs> then, in advance. <laughs> I hope that we can maybe cheer you up, so to speak, during our course of our conversation. Um, I'm really thankful that we are able to hear some stories or background to Chawton House, really, from you this afternoon. So, I guess we'll go back to... The late 1980s, I believe, after your father passed away, uh, how did you feel about taking on Chawton House and the responsibility of looking after Chawton House? I suppose it's not really something you can necessarily prepare for that well. No, I mean, I was um, working very hard at my the business I had developed in Gloucestershire, which was a farming business, and it was, um, uh, you know, it was my my sort of passion and my main activity, my main source of income. And so um, I didn't devote a lot of time to, to anything to do with Chawton uh, for many years prior to my father's death in 1987. And then because the estate was entailed to me, suddenly Chawton landed in my lap and I actually had to do something. So there was no option, and I had to come down here and uh, look around and decide, uh, make a lot of decisions about how to go forward from there, because things were, uh, I think it's fair to say that things were fairly run down, both inside and outside the house. You know, after the war and after um, a lot of upheaval and taxation, basically the family had run out of resources to run a place like this. So it wasn't a question of, oh, go down there and live there. I had to go down there and think of a way forward for the place because I would have been, I thought, rather stupid to surrender my life in Gloucestershire in order to come down here and go bankrupt, which is what would have happened. Goodness. And so how did you feel then? Well, I think that, um, you know, the weight of responsibility, you you know, you do notice... um, when you realise the length of time that a place like this has been in the family and you go to the church and there's a statue of old uh, Sir Richard Knight who died in 1640 or something mm. and you think, well, there he is. You know, am I going to be the one to cut and run and, and sell this place away completely? And I decided to try not to do that, to hang on to the ownership of the freehold and to allow someone else to come and do their thing here and maintain the place uh, because I couldn't afford to. And can you tell me a bit of what 
Chawton estate was like then? You say it was sort of run down, is that fair to say? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, it had been the centre of a very considerable landed estate before the war. Uh, and then, for various reasons, um, including bad management, I would think, uh, the size of the estate had dwindled down to 25 acres, and that was mainly garden and a couple of paddocks. And it was all, as I said, very run down. All the, all the parkland around had been sold off Basically, everything had been sold off. The village had been sold off. The, house, the houses in the village, which used to belong to the estate, had all been sold off one by one. And um, there was not a lot left except a large uh, run-down house. Um, you know, very large. I think, I think I counted 50 rooms or something. And a small piece of derelict land. Yeah. And that was it. And a couple of derelict buildings out the back. Mm, and so... When you first looked around it, did you did you start having imagining the way you want to go forward with Chawton, how you imagined it being in your sort of ideal scenario at that time? No, apart from the fact that I knew that I didn't want to sell up and leave completely mm. because of the his, history, the family history here, I had no clear view about what could happen. But I did talk to lots of people. You know, I talked to friends and I talked to professionals and I talked to anyone who'd give me an opinion about what, what I might do to move the thing forward and get it repaired. And, um, you know, in the end, you meet someone and you think, ah, yeah, you know, that, that sounds right. Let's try and do that. And I did meet someone like that and, you know, we did go ahead and market a long leasehold. So that meant that someone else would take over for a hundred years or whatever it was the lease however the lease was going to be and they would spend the money on the restoration and they would be responsible for the place and the Knight family would step back but would still be there as landowners, landlords. Mm -hmm. And I also kept a couple of the derelict little buildings at the back and was able to improve them. One was the dovecote and the other was the mews where the hawks were kept. And uh, I was able to improve both of those, and then our dwellings. Mm. Well, one of them's a dwelling, mm. to be more accurate, and the other's waiting to be restored. I've now given them on to my son, one of my sons, and he's an architect, and he's scratching his head about how he can make some kind of improved dwelling. And so, was that first? Was that leaseholder? Was that was that Sally Dana, or? No, the first. No, it, it was a very bumpy ride. Uh, the first effort to find somebody to take it on ended up with uh, a consortium of a British consortium uh, coming up with an enormous scheme for two international golf courses side by side in the parkland that we didn't own and turning the house into a hotel and extending the hotel underground up the garden. Oh, it was a most it was a most ambitious and elaborate plan. And unfortunately, it hit the property crash of circa 1990. Right. Uh, my father died in 1987, so two or three years on, I was, you know, this project was ready to go, and the property market crashed. Golf courses sort of disappeared, which were extremely popular, um, and could raise big funds. And this was ideal. The scenery and the place and everything was ideal. Um, but the, the, it was taken out by the property market crash, and nobody wanted to lend the money. So the consortium 
that I thought was going to buy the lease couldn't. And so it became, it went into the hands of the receiver. It was all very dramatic and, and very upsetting. Mm, I bet that would be rather stressful, to say the least. <laughs> so it was almost going to turn into international golf courses. But what happened after that? Well, the receiver had to do something with it. And um, a relative of mine happened to go to talk to the Jane Austen Society of North America meeting in California or somewhere, annual meeting, and said that this place was going begging and that he hoped to set something up here. And I knew that it wasn't going to be possible for him to fund it, so I wasn't keen on him doing it. But in the audience at that meeting was Sandy Lerner, who had recently founded Cisco Systems and had sold out to... uh, venture capitalists for a very great deal of money and she was passionate about Jane Austen and she was passionate about the the fact that women writers over the years back to Jane Austen's time and before hadn't been properly recognised and she thought right Chawton is the place where I need to have a library set up a library for the study of Jane Austen and these women and uh, so she turned to her secretary so the story goes or a PA, and said, buy it. And so this happened suddenly and quickly. And um, so then she appeared on the scene, both with the money and the, uh, the drive and the ambition to create something here, which obviously was highly suitable for the house and its history. Indeed, certainly. And so did, did you, were you the person who received the call from her secretary about this? No, my agent did. So, or the receiver did, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I very soon became involved. And Sandy very kindly asked me to become a trustee of the the trust that she formed to do this job of, of restoration and setting up the research library. Um, and she also involved my son, who was an architectural graduate at the time, in the restoration project, and my daughter, who was a landscape architect, in the restoration of the landscape Mm. and the instruction was to take it back to Jane Austen's time. So it was all tidied up and I was able, as part of the the golf deal, I was able to get back um, into family ownership or night um, Chawton ownership, the 250 acres or so of land that would have been golf courses. And so that that was good. How, how did that feel when you knew that that was going ahead, that it was going to be turned back almost towards the sort of Jane Austen style? Well, it was a, it was a wonderful use for the place. Um, exactly what I, you know, I couldn't have wanted for any more, could I, really? And, um, I mean, Sandy was not an easy person to work with, but uh, we had a lot of fun, and the job got done. It took ten years, you know, from, from well, almost ten years, from, you know, 1990... Oh, whenever it, whenever it was, ninety-two, I think she took over, something like that, and it didn't open as a library till two thousand and three. So that's ten years. I mean, it took two years to get the planning permissions necessary to do the restoration, and oh, there were all sorts of annoying snags along the way. Like there was a swimming pool out in the in the main view, built in the nineteen thirties by my family, and it was a terrible thing because it leaked and you couldn't swim in it and we needed to get rid of it. 
And then somebody found that there was a badger set in the banks of the swimming pool. And, of course, you can't move badger sets. They're protected by the law. So there was an almighty row, which went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I had the American on one side saying, what are you talking about? I can't move the swimming pool because there's a badger set. Move the badgers. No, we can't. We're not allowed to. And she simply couldn't believe it. And then there were people this side saying, you know, don't touch that badger set. You can't. Blah, blah, blah. Goodness, you must have been pulling your hair out. You must have had so many different stakeholders. A lot of people thought that they knew exactly what to to do. But it wasn't always possible. But during that badger crisis, we, because the attention was on the badgers um, and the publicity, uh, we were able to take the back, take the back of the house down, uh, which was a Victorian extension, which housed a billiard room and a bedrooms upstairs and a billiard room and a lot of downstairs offices, if you like. Um, and that all was crumbling and coming away from the main building. And we were able to take that down at that time which was quite a coup, because you can't normally take bits off heavily listed houses. Mm, wow. And, and what happened to the badgers, may I ask? Eventually we found, found somebody who knew the legislation inside out and who was able to prove that the, the badgers could be relocated, and they were. Fantastic. So mm. Happy badgers. And yeah, there are still badgers around, but the bank that they dug in is not there anymore. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting to think that there was a swimming pool out there because I would have never, my sort of time of knowing Chawton, I, I never knew that there'd be. Yes, there was. It was, a, it was a pretty frightful place. It was quite a big swimming pool. Um, yeah, somebody thought it was a good idea, probably in the 1930s or something like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I guess England's not necessarily the best place for an outdoor pool. But <laughs> no, but there are lots of them about. And it actually wasn't heated either. I mean, there was nothing. It was just a pool. Um, um, you know, I remember a, uh, a sort of puddle of green sludge, not not a swimming pool like you dream about. Mm. <laughs> and it had to go. I mean, it, it leaked, but more importantly, it was an excrescence on the lands. You know, the beautiful landscape that's here now, mm. which was what Jane Austen would have known, and quite rightly, you know, the people who were trying to restore the landscape said, "We've got to do without the pool." Yeah. And so you say that the house, the parts of the house and the back were almost crumbling. How did you go about the restoration of inside the house? Were you involved of overseeing any of that yourself? Um, not, I didn't have any particular role other than to appreciate what was going on. I mean, they, there, was a, there was a director here who was an engineer, a lady who was an engineer, and she was brilliant at overseeing the restoration. And then there was a guy called Adrian Thatcher who ran it on a day-to-day basis, ran the restoration on a day-to-day basis and got in the contractors and made it all work. It was a huge job and it took years and it cost millions. You know, so, and the house was almost literally taken apart and put back together again. Re-roofed, re-wired, re-plumbed, everything fancy um, smoke alarms you know all that sort of thing had to go in it had to be made secure certainly and did your son Adam have a large role to play in the sort of architecture side I think he did he did quite yes I mean he was working under the main architect as an assistant uh, but he was told to go off and do a lot of drawings and yeah work things out I think he did he did a lot yeah and he must have been passionate about it, to say the least. No. Well, I think he was, he was interested, yes. Yes, yes, I think he was interested. And um, 
I have actually now just handed it all on to him, so he's got to take even more of an interest now. Yeah. <laughs> and your daughter, Cassie, as well, with all the... She's a, a landscape yeah. architect. She must have found that quite a project as well, so yeah. I don't imagine yeah. the land as it is today, as you've already mentioned, that there was a swimming pool at the front. It must be very different from what it was like when you first sort of took over. Yes, Sandy enabled the planting of an awful lot of trees. I can't remember, I think something like 6,000 trees were planted, and planted in a way um, designed by Cassie to screen the A32 road and to restore the parkland with parkland-type trees and things called roundels, which are little bunches of, little round bunches of trees um, in the park and um, so there was all sorts of you know restoring the ha-ha um, and getting a, you know a new fence a new metal fence made to go in the bottom of the ha-ha um, yeah it was a big job and th they I mean I think their, the experience they had doing it has been absolutely invaluable to them in later life and it was very it was very good of Sandy to insist on involving them yeah that must be really nice to think that Sandy was keeping family members involved because I guess it could potentially have been completely different if if they weren't if the family wasn't kept involved in the whole process of the restoration of the house and what it is today. Yeah, I mean it was particularly um, satisfactory. You know, I really appreciated being involved directly. Um, and obviously making a few decisions along the way or helping make decisions influencing what happened. To think that it might have been a hotel, we were onto something much, much more suitable, which hopefully will carry on into the future. Yes. What are your thoughts on Chawton House today, being since it's become much more open to the public to come and visit with its roots to Jane Austen? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the wonderful thing about Sandy was that she was able to fund the whole thing basically, the restoration and an annual sum of money to keep it going and keep people employed. Um, and anyway, that all ended in August 2016 or 2017, and she suddenly wasn't there. And so there's been a great deal of scrabbling to reinvent the thing as a visitor enterprise in order for it to pay for itself. Because one of the strange things about life is that people... People don't pay for libraries. Libraries right around the world are kind of expected to be there for free, run by governments or local authorities or vast universities or something. People don't pay for books, to take books out and study books. So that's not a source of income. And yet it was a main role of, of this place. Yeah. So now it's had to adapt. And um, it's been adapting ever since Sandy left, and I think now, I hope, I feel that we're really getting somewhere with a lot of energetic and clever people who are reinventing it as a visitor enterprise. And of course the pandemic came at bang on the wrong moment. So that has had to be got over and got through, and hopefully we'll come out the other side. Yes, certainly. And how do you imagine Torton being for your future generations? Um, I haven't the faintest idea because um, all I could do was to try and um, do the best I could f during the period when I've been able to 
clearly that period is ending because I'm getting older, and which is why I've handed it on to the next generation. Well, hopefully that it will it will continue to thrive as a visitor enterprise and a place where people can come and research and enjoy themselves. And it's a particularly neat and beautiful piece of countryside within Hampshire, but fairly close to London and fairly close to a lot of big populations. And I would like to think that people will be able to march about and breathe the air and look at the views and because it is sensational. Yeah, and, um, you know, you can get a cup of tea as well. Going back a bit as well, it seems like there's... So some of the volunteers have been helping, I think Martin was the one to mention, helping put together a lot of information on the whole history of the house. Are you, were you even aware of quite how much there is to this house? Um, no. I mean, we owe it all to Jane Austen and the strange train of events that took place involving her brother 200 years ago um, when he suddenly found himself being presented with this estate and other estates all over the place, land all over the place. And that, you know, the involvement that has become Jane Austen, because he gave her and her mother and sister the opportunity of living in the village, and that has led to Chawton becoming, Chawton Village that is, uh, and Chawton House as well, um, a bit of a centre of interest on a writer who is world-renowned. And so that's a hugely significant um, thing, which you know I constantly thank the Lord for, that Jane Austen is there in the background, because if this was just a house without that, that story and that connection with a famous, very famous writer, it would not be what it is now. And so um, all that all that has got to be nurtured and brought out and brought on and encouraged. And, I mean, it's a worldwide industry, Jane Austen, and we're terribly lucky to be involved. And so I'm supposing Jordan has played a very significant part in your life. Well, certainly for the last 30 years, it's been top of the agenda. I mean, I obviously had to continue as a farmer, um, but I've, you know, I, sh- I shed that onto another son, <coughs> I don't know how many years ago now, 15 years ago. And I, I, but I have had to try and, I was lucky, I was lucky to be a farmer and be able to take time out to mm-hmm. come down here a lot, often, yeah. um, and do stuff here to try and make it work. So um, I'm going to ask, that must have been very tricky, trying to juggle your own sort of life. Of, well, it's, yeah. it's 85 miles of either way. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a little house down here, which, which was jolly nice. So it's been, it's been possible, but it's been a, a very hard work. I mean, I have had two hats to wear and try and make work. Yeah, I'm very yeah. lucky that, that it did sort of turn out the way way it has done if I may say so myself <laughs> I think it's something that Jordan House is as we said something that so many people come here and now thoroughly enjoy the house the scenery the, even the library still it's it's fantastic yeah you know it's going to be it's always going to be a struggle because it won't be a cheap place it isn't a cheap place to run I mean it basically bankrupted my family um, because these places are not suitable for the modern age and the modern way of life is a family home 
So it's got to be some kind of institution, and but retain its charm as a former family home. And that's hopefully what, what it will do. Uh, but it's going to be a struggle always to keep it up together. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for talking to me. I'm sure the listeners will really enjoy listening to your story of Jordan House. So thank you. Thank you so much to Richard Knight for sharing his story and thank you for listening. Coming up on the next episode of the Chawton House podcast, I will be speaking with Richard's daughter, Cassie, to find out about the restoration of the estate's gardens. As always, you can keep updated on what's happening at the house by heading on over to the Chawton House website or following their social media. Even during lockdown, there are still plenty of online events that can be enjoyed wherever you are. This music is Guitalele's Happy Place by Kara Square, found on ccmixter.org.